being wrong about something might be less costly than losing friends <laughs> over this issue, especially when it comes uh, to issues such as uh, until relatively recently did not have huge consequences for daily life like climate change. So it's fine to be wrong about climate change as long as you can keep your friends. So there's this social network aspect. But then there is also another kind of network, and there's this semantic network. And these are all kinds of different values that we have that are surrounding this issue. So especially climate change famously, and after decades of political manipulation, is tightly, tightly related to political ideology. And Democrats believe one thing, Republicans believe one thing, well, whereas the issue of climate change should not be related to any political ideology. <laughs> complicated and immense. It challenges our comparably simple minds to even know which information we should use to make decisions. The human brain seems tuned to follow simple rules, and those rules change depending on the people we can turn to for support. When we decide to follow the majority or place our trust in experts, for example, depends on the networks in which we're embedded. Consequently, much of learning and decision-making has as much or more to do with social implications as it has to do with an objective world of fact. And this has major consequences for the ways in which we come together to solve complex problems. Whether in governance, science, or private life, the strategies we lean on, mostly unconsciously, determine whether we form wise, effective groups or whether our collective process gets jammed up with autocrats or bureaucrats Sometimes the crowd is smarter than the individual, and sometimes not. And figuring out which strategies are better requires a nuanced look at how we make decisions with each other and how information flows through human networks. Given the scale and intensity of modern life, the science of our social lives takes on profound importance. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute, the world's foremost complex systems science research organization. I'm your host, Michael Garfield. Each week, we'll bring you with us for far-reaching conversations with our worldwide network of researchers, rigorous scientists and mathematicians, philosophers and artists developing new frameworks, tools, and theories to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This is a show about your world and the people who have dedicated their lives to exploring and explaining its emergent order, their stories, research, and insights. Join us for an adventure into complexity. This week's guest is SFI professor and Cohen Chair in Human Social Dynamics, Mirta Galasik, external faculty at the Complexity Science Hub in Vienna and associate researcher at the Harding Center for Risk Literacy at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin. In this episode, we talk about her research into how simple cognitive mechanisms interact with social and physical environments to produce complex social phenomena, and how we can understand and cope with the uncertainty and complexity inherent in our everyday decisions. Before we start, we'd like to inform you of upcoming opportunities with SFI. Applications are now open for the 2020 Complex Systems Summer School, the Graduate Workshop in Computational Social Science, the 2020 Journalism Fellowship, and a postdoctoral position in scaling theory. Learn more at santafe.edu. 
We're also running our year-end fund drive for our free online courseware at complexityexplorer.org and getting closer to our goals by the day. For transcripts of this episode, along with show notes, research links, and more, please visit complexity.simplecast.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please help us reach a wider audience by leaving a five-star review at Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Mirta Galasic, it's a pleasure to be interviewing you for Complexity. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be interviewed by you. So this is a, a topic, I feel, of extreme importance, this question of social learning, social decision-making. We're at a point now where, you know, reading your work is actually kind of frightening because it becomes apparent very quickly that the way that we come to decisions uh, both individually and collectively, seems sort of mismatched with the scale of modern life. And uh, I, I'm really looking forward to getting into that with you. But first, I want to take us back a little bit and invite you to talk about how you became a scientist and how you, you know, what, what got you into this kind of research and these kinds of questions in the first place. I guess I was always curious as a child and always always wanted to ask um, difficult questions. And I was pestering my parents, who were also scientists. They were both scientists with, with different things. And my parents were chemists. So for them, it was, they were what I, what I call like true scientists. They were, they, uh, <laughs> they were able to do beautiful experiments with chemicals that were changing colors. And they, they, you know, when I would ask them something about chemistry, they knew the answers to that. And they had theories, they had equations, they had models. Um, and so I, I thought, oh, science is great. It gives us some certainty about life. It answers questions. Let me be a scientist as well. But of course, because my parents were chemists, I didn't want to be a chemist. Of course, I wanted to be something <laughs> as dif different as possible. So, And I had this really cool uh, high school teacher in psychology who brought us to Amsterdam for our high school trip. And, um, and you know, he was cool. And so I, I said, okay, I'm going to study psychology. And psychology was really cool in Croatia at that time, and you had to pass, like, intelligence tests to get in, and it was really prestigious for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> and, and I wanted to study psychology because I wanted to help people. Somehow in the process, I, I, I started to feel this kind of empathy in myself, empathy maybe because my brother was a little bit disabled, and so I felt that everybody can be given a chance if kind of understood and respected as a person. And so I wanted to, to be a clinical psychologist. I wanted to help people with problems, especially young people who feel low self-esteem or who are drug addicts and so on. Well, so it turns out that my department of psychology was not clinical at all. It was completely experimental. It was quantitative methods in psychology. It was a lot of math and statistics. And then as I was poor, I started to work in marketing research agencies, uh, inputting data, analyzing data. And so I completely lost the clinical part. I never became a clinical psychologist. And also I realized how difficult it is to actually help people. Uh, I really respect people who do that, but I, I just saw that maybe my path is a little bit different. Maybe when I retire, I'll be, <laughs> I'll be a clinical psychologist again. But now I, I kind of learned a lot about how to measure various attitudes that people have, behaviors, how to make models of cognitive processes and social processes, how to test them statistically. And so I became a scientific psychologist, let's say. <laughs> During that time, while I was studying, the war had started in Croatia, where I'm from, I'm from Croatia. 
This is one of the six republics of Yugoslavia, where we lived all happily together for my first 16 years of life. And then suddenly all hell broke loose. And that was very interesting for me to see. This whole, the, the whole society changed in a matter of a couple of years from a relatively secular, not nationalistic, um, inclusive, I always say, give us one more generation, we would probably all be atheists and would kind of follow scientific principles. But somehow something happened. And within a year, people started killing each other because of national or religious orientation. Religion came back in big way. Uh, nationalism came back big way. Suddenly everyone was judged by whether they were Croat or Serb. Suddenly it was important whether your grandmother was Catholic or Orthodox. And um, people became very angry. And manipulation of people started on a large scale. So suddenly, you know, until the 90s, I was like any other teenager. We had a lot of American influences. I would listen to, you know, everything from The Cure to, you know, U2 or whatever. And suddenly all the music stopped in the 1990s. And you just had nationalistic songs on the radio, like for a decade, and nationalistic speeches. And only one side of the, of the whole, you know, Yugoslavian coin was presented to us in Croatia. And the same happened in other republics. And so some people just never recovered. And this division is present until, until now. So now we are, what is it now, 30 years later, people still kind of hate each other. There is still enormous nationalism. Religion is stronger than ever. And uh, people are judged by whether they belong there, one of us or one of them. And it's easy to dismiss everything that anybody has to say and any reason and any logic, any corruption, anything can be justified if only the person is one of us versus not one of them. So that's super interesting to me, you know, how a society that lived for 40 years in a, the secular society, the non-national society was carefully built for 40 years and suddenly everything collapses. And so seeing some similar processes today also in, in some much stronger democracies, I'm, I'm really curious about how this all works and um, how could we... Can I find some certainty that my or some some beauty of quantitative models that my parents had with chemistry, with molecules and crystals? <laughs> Can I find something like that in human societies? Of course, the first that people think about it, the immediate answer is no, of course not. This is too complex. We cannot model them with a few simple equations. On the other hand, I guess didn't we think about everything around us in that way? And gradually we managed to figure out how physics work, and we sent a man to the moon, and, and figure out many things. And so I'm wondering whether the next frontier could be to figure out a little bit better, at least, how we function as a society, and what are maybe some simple rules that guide us, that contribute to this enormous transition so that in societies that we see today. And so that's what I'm doing here. Mm. God, this was a long monologue, sorry. No, it's good. <laughs> we'll see, maybe. It's good. Maybe no, maybe. don't worry about it. Uh, you know, when I... I spoke to Rajiv Sethi oh, yeah. earlier, um, and we talked about his work on on stereotyping. And mm -hmm. I feel like reading your research, mm -hmm. his work has been coming up a lot for me as well. That this there's this this core issue in understanding how something like this Serbo-Croatian conflict can erupt. How you know, like when uh, Francisco Varela left Chile in 1973, he said you could turn on the radio and one station would say it was raining outside and another station would say it was sunny outside. And like, what is going on here? 
you know, how how is it that the United States seems to be torn between completely different realities, right? And something he said, uh, and, and something that has come up again and again in your work, is the challenge to this traditional idea that the so-called homo economicus mm. model of the rational decision maker acting on perfect information, having, you know, a sort of unassailable self-interest that we are always acting on imperfect information, mm -hmm. that we have these cognitive limits. And so our strategies for making decisions are not ubiquitous, right? Mm -hmm. Like everyone kind of settles on their own strategies based on the conditions of their life. Uh, but we're all limited by the time and attention and mental resources that we're able to devote a decision. So I'm really, I'm really curious, you know, now that we're in the, the meat of this, uh, I would love to start just by talking about uh, the, one of the papers you co-authored for the Association for Psychological Science on social sampling and the, how we have these biases about our own individual social environments and how that can lead to apparent, you know, radically different perspectives on what we would think of as like an objective mm. external reality. And people are seeing it in completely different ways. So could, could you talk yeah. a little bit about that piece? Actually, I, I will disagree yeah. with you here a little bit. Okay. So it, what we are kind of claiming is that people are actually pretty good, pretty adapted to their, uh, social, to their immediate social worlds. We believe after now many, you know, 10 years of research after this paper, that, oh, I mean, not 10, but okay. Seven. <laughs> okay, yeah. after seven years of research on this paper, the people actually have a quite a good idea about their friends, family, acquaintances, people that they meet on every uh, everyday basis and they, they, with whom they need to cooperate with, um, learn from, or avoid. And that they're actually not that not as biased as social as the traditional social psychology would like us to think, and we see that uh, because when we ask people about their friends, we see that this predicts societal trends quite well. So in one line of research, we asked a national probabilistic sample of people to to tell us who their friends are going to vote for. Mm -hmm. We averaged those things across the national sample and got better prediction of election results than when we asked people about their own behavior. And this would not have happened if people were biased in reporting their friends. They must have told us something. They must have given us information that's accurate and that goes, goes beyond their own behavior in order for that to happen, to predict elections better. And by now we saw that in... Four further, so in five elections altogether, in the U.S. 2016, in France, the Netherlands, the Sweden, and U.S. 2018, and we hope to predict again 2020. You know, so things like that tell us that people are actually pretty good in understanding their social circles, and then the, the apparent biases show up when people are asked to judge people that they don't know so well. So when I'm asked to tell you something about people in another state or another country, or people from another socioeconomic cluster, which I don't know well, then I am likely to have some biases. But these biases, we show, can be explained by what I know about my friends. 
then I'm really trying. So if you ask me something like that, I will really try to answer your question honestly. And to do that, I will try to recall from my memory everything that I know about our social, my social world. But, you know, if I'm surrounded by rich people, like here on the east side of Santa Fe, it could be very difficult to imagine in what poverty people can live in other parts. And so even if I'm trying my best to recall, you know, the most poor per person I know, I might never recall such poverty that actually exists in the world. And when asked about the overall level of income in the U.S., I'm likely to overestimate the overall level. And similarly, if you're poor, you're, people who are poor might have problems imagining the wealth of really rich people, and they will typically underestimate the wealth of the, of the, of the country. So, okay, so let me, let me summarize this. So this piece actually suggests that people are not that biased when it comes to judging their immediate friends. They have a lot of useful information about their friends and pretty accurate. The biases show up when people are asked about other populations that they don't know so well, and they can be mostly explained by the structure of their own personal social networks. The more biased your social networks are, the more biased your estimates will be about the general population. Yeah. Does so, that make sense? Yeah, yeah. totally. Okay. So there, there's something in, in that that I found really interesting mm -hmm. about this social sampling, mm -hmm. which is that, as you mentioned, like if, if you happen to be worse off mm -hmm. and everyone else is worse off, mm -hmm. as is, you know, the case with like income, for mm -hmm. example, then being worse off, you're going to project your bias into that general population more accurately than if you're better off in some situation for which the most of the population is worse off. And it, it, right. these biases are yeah. not all created equal. Yes. It has to do with yes. how they stand relative to yeah. the, the broader population. So what we show is that these kind of biases of judgments of the broader population can be explained by the structure of social network and not by some cognitive deficit or motivational uh, motivational bias, some desire to be better than others, or that, or some idea that everybody is like me, or some cognitive deficit that people cannot, that that people are too stupid to understand how other people live. It is really determined by the context of memory, that by the content of one's memory, which comes from one social circle. I may be rushing out ahead Go here ahead. Uh, from scientific insight to policy advisement, right? Mm -hmm. But it sounds like this gives us a really clear pointer on how to correct for this handicap. Yeah. And that we really ought to be, like, perhaps when it comes time to make decisions mm -hmm. on behalf of everyone, we should really be listening to whomever the oppressed are in that population. We should be really paying attention for example, to laborers and mm -hmm. students mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, people that are ordinarily not historically not given yeah. a lot of political voice. And what you're saying, yeah, it's in other words, what we need to do is broaden our social networks, include in our social networks those people who are typically not there. So if, if the policymakers who are making these important decisions should have should know as many different people as possible. And we show in in related studies, that people who have most, most diverse social circles are also best able to predict societal trends and to understand how the overall population lives and what people want. In this paper, you surveyed the Dutch. Mm -hmm. 
And I, I found it really interesting. You know, this isn't just a matter of, of personal wealth or household wealth or personal income, household income. You looked at the number of conflicts that people are having with their romantic partners. Yeah. You looked at the number of friends people have. And it, it starts to get into this this other thing, like the friendship paradox, mm -hmm. right? And how in, we, again, we tend to misestimate the life conditions of other people. Like I found, I was surprised to realize just how wrong people were in their estimates of how frequently other people were fighting with their spouses, yeah, for yeah, example. So we deliberately included different characteristics from income and education. It's kind of easier to observe to such less observable characteristics that people often don't talk about, like conflicts with partner, but also the frequency of depression, of pain, and these kind of things. And so, yes, uh, the the less something visible and the less is talked about, and the more error will people show in estimating those. However, we still see that there is some signal there. It's not that people are completely oblivious or that they are only projecting their own, you know, frequency of conflict with their own partner. People have some idea. They people are actually smarter than we think. <laughs> I mean, at least you know some some. Scientists say that our big brains are result of uh, or are have, have developed because of our need to to collaborate with others, and that our social cognition is perhaps the main driver of our intelligence. So it's not unusual to see for me that people are actually good in understanding who they are surrounding with because they need to know a lot about other people to choose the best cooperation partner, to choose whom to learn from and who to avoid. You mentioned in the discussion of this paper mm -hmm. this exact thing, you know, that attunement to one's immediate social network mm -hmm. can be considered adaptive, Absolutely. right? You know, there's there's this trade-off between the computational cost yeah. of, like, understanding the big picture and the ease and the efficiency yeah. of just being able to take this local sample. Mm -hmm. So how do you think about this in terms of the broader questions about the evolution of human cognitive bias, you know, stuff like Dunning-Kruger or the, uh, the Dunbar number, you know, these, mm -hmm. these cases where we have, I mean, those are pretty different topics, but, um, you know, how do you, you know, how do you think about this in terms of, you know, when I think about the broader questions of, of complex system science, uh, the evolution of intelligence and this kind of thing, you know, it seems as though there's like a a certain laziness, you know, to, to evolution. We talk about free energy minimization and that kind of thing. And I'm curious, yeah, just mm -hmm. to hear you expound on that. This is off topic, but, you know, as a woman with periods, I definitely understand that there is some, some, some you know, boundaries that evolution cannot cross. You know, after millennia of evolution, there's still this, you know, can't this be better? Okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. So um, my impression is that a lot of the story about human cognitive biases comes from imperfect measurement and comes from um, inadequate understanding of human cognition. I think that we are actually much less biased than the classical cognitive psychology and social psychology tells us. If you Google cognitive bias, you'll get hundreds and hundreds of biases. Uh, careers were made on these biases, and they're easy to show in certain laboratory experiments, in certain constrained conditions. However, once you take into account the complex situation in which we need to operate, 
you must you take into account not only the cognitive process, but also the social network in which we operate and um, the, the sources of information that, uh, that, uh, that our cognition operates on, then you see that many of these biases are actually not there. You can reverse them. You can, you can, you can show the opposite. You can uh, completely erase them. For example, in this work on uh, social networks and social judgments, we see that we can have uh, opposite biases, uh, apparently opposite biases, um, depending on the structure of social networks. Sometimes we get people to behave as if they're enhancing their own position in the society, sometimes as if they're diminishing their position in society. Sometimes we get biases that look like that people think that everybody's like them, and sometimes that as if people think that nobody's like them. And then we show that there is nothing in the mind. It's the same simple cognitive algorithm that, that sees the environment and maybe forgets some things, but nothing motivated, and then which then interacts with the network structure and then shows these apparent biases. So I, I, I do believe that Kruger-Dunning in particular, such biases, that they're actually product of imperfect measurement and that as we, uh, as we social scientists learn how to better measure human behavior in many different and re real-world contexts, and as we learn to, to have better models, kind of more models that acknowledge the, the complex um, social cognitive system in which we operate, then that many of these biases will actually go away and we'll be able to marvel like biologists do, anthropologists do, to the beauty of human cognition, everything that we can do and how well adapted we are actually to our environments. And by doing that, then we will know, okay, maybe there is some baseline, there are some, there is some baseline level of biases that will still remain. For example, like Dumper number, which seems like a logical consequence of the way we live through millennia and so, and how our brain adapted. But um, many of these biases will go away. And so once we understand ourselves better, then we will be able also to deal with the remaining biases better and to focus on what's really important and not just completely dismiss any possibility that we can operate, you know, in, in some adaptive way in our world. Yeah, linked to that, mm -hmm. you had a paper that you co-authored with Daniel Barcosi yeah. in uh, Nature Communications, where you talked about social learning strategies and network structure, mm -hmm. which was the last thing I read before this. And okay. I think in some respects, the most nuanced and, and kind of intricate mm -hmm. of, in terms of the findings mm -hmm. of all of the, the mm -hmm. papers here, this this thing about the heuristics that we use to make these decisions. I know that you left this a kind of open question towards the end of this paper about how different social learning strategies may have evolved to suit different network structures. But I'd like to get to that through through this and, and, and ask these questions because it, it sounds to me like it's not as simple as... Um, just suggesting that if we were just exposed to enough of the other, you know, whatever that group is, mm -hmm. that we would have a better, uh -huh. a better outcome, right? Because in some of these cases, uh, larger sample numbers actually d decrease the performance of the, the social learning in that mm -hmm. network. So um, could you talk a little bit about this particular research and, and the findings that you came to? And yeah. <laughs> really, that, that was the whole thing. I could have just started with that. First, I should say that uh, the, the paper was co-authored with Daniel Bracosi, who was my PhD student at the Max Planck Institute, who is awesome and great, and all the good ideas are his in this paper. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, 
Yeah, there is. Uh, you're completely right. Even if you had the most diverse network of friends um, and the largest group of friends, we still might fail to understand like the the, the broader social environment if we are using inadequate rules to make decisions. If we are like very focused on the advice of a particular friend, or if we are following a particular leader. Even in, you know, we, we see today, even in today's world where we have access to all kinds of information, we can be everyone's friend and learn from anyone. We, we do tend to still use rules for, to integrate social information that exclude vast parts of, of this uh, social network. We follow our leaders, we follow people we trust, you know, we follow our spouse. And so we don't profit from all the diversity around us. And that's what the paper is showing in a way, maybe in a more positive way, but it's basically showing this interaction of network structure and the decision rule that people are using. So when people are following one member of their network, in this case, in this paper, we're investigating the, the rule of follow the best, so follow the one who currently has the best solution, that can be good when problems are simple and when it's really, when there is a demonstrably uh, best solution and all we should we should do is, you know, to find that that best way to, you know, make a, I don't know, make a cake or go to from point A to B. But when the when the problem is actually much is more complex, then this following the current the, the one who has the currently best solution can backfire because the whole group, the whole society can get stuck in a, what we call a local optimum or in a solution that seems all right, but actually in the long run. It could have been much more improved if we were more open to other ideas. So the, the, there, is, there is an interaction between the rule that we are using to make decisions, the, the network, like how many different diverse opinions are in our, in our network, and the, and the problem we are solving. So kind of more generally, this, this, this paper talks about the, the issue of diversity. And I like to question everything in my work, including concepts that we all you know, hold dear and love, like diversity. Everybody loves diversity. We think that it's always should be encouraged. And I'm talking about diversity of opinions, not about, of course, diversity of, of visible or sociodemographic characteristics, which I all, always you know, advocate for, and which is certainly important. But um, the diversity of opinion in a group is sometimes good, sometimes bad. Again, it depends on the, on the task. Sometimes the task is so simple that we should just follow the one who seems to you know, know the area best, who seems to have the best solution, and we will all be better off like a simple mathematical equations or, you know, finding the shortest way from A to B. But most things in life are more complex than that. There are many ways to bake a cake or to make a new computer or to write a scientific paper or to arrange a political system. <laughs> and so zeroing in on a first solution that seems reasonable, it will often lead to suboptimal overall solution for the society. In my work, I like to question concepts, even those that we hold dear, like diversity, and indeed, diversity is important in many real-life contexts in which we need to solve complex tasks where there are many possible solutions and many possible ways to go. Then it's really important to surround ourselves with diverse people, to use decision rules that, that enables us to open up and to explore many different options. However, there are some situations when the solution is there. It is known. I mean, it is easy, easy to know, or maybe it's already found. And maybe there is no, no need to, to hear many different opinions about a simple thing like how much is 2 plus 2 or what is the shortest distance between A and B. You should just follow the one who seems to have the best solution. And, and oftentimes we will, we will be better off than 
discussing about it for a long period of time. In these cases, actually, diversity is not that, that good, which brings me to a controversial issue, if you want, which is like once the society comes to a solution to a long-standing problem, such as, is there God? My Catholic family is now giving up on me in Croatian. <laughs> like, is there God? Or um, uh, should, you know, should we allow... No, okay. Is there is, is anthropogenic climate change happening? Mm-hmm. There seems to be abundant evidence that this is happening. But somehow, uh, in the society that values diversity, we are still inviting people to have opinions about it. And I wonder, you know, this is a controversial issue. <laughs> At some point, when, when we reached, when we are close to a particular solution, whether some mechanism for reducing diversity actually might be better for the society. So I think there is a delicate balance between more diversity and less diversity, depending on the on the complexity of the problem, on how close we are to the solution. Yeah, you know, and so much of this is about, you know, I'm, I'm reminded of Jessica Flack's work on collective computation mm-hmm. and talks about the difference between an actual ground truth, mm-hmm. you know, there are 972 beans in that jar, mm-hmm. versus an effective ground truth, like we're all going to drive on the right side of the street, because that's what we all agree that we're going to do. And, you know, this is this is uh, something that's been coming up a lot, is this, the distinction between the empirical and the social in terms of the truth, and how sometimes it's not easy to tell which is which, mm-hmm. that, you know, not to just dart around cavalierly through your papers, but you have this other one with Barkozy and also uh, Katsikopoulos on uh, how small crowds can outperform large crowds. And it seems like the the linchpin there, again, is about the complexity of the problem. The way that you explain this is that if the problem is simple enough for an expert to get it, mm-hmm. then at some point, the it, larger group is better. Yeah, a larger group is is going to converge on yeah. an average, right? But but really, really complex problems adding experts just comp, just adds noise or adds an energetic overhead, uh, like a cost to this that isn't actually improving the solution. And so th- these questions of how complex is the situation in that we're actually trying to solve mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. seems to be the real sort of killer question here. Yeah, this is a bit a crucial question. If we knew in advance whether a, pro- a problem will be simple or complex or easy or difficult, then we would be able to optimize our networks and our decision rules and always behave in a, in a best way. Unfortunately, we don't know. There is uncertainty. We never know whether the next election, or oftentimes we don't know whether the next election will be easy or difficult to predict. Well, maybe we know for this next one. We don't know whether the next you know job hire will be an easy or difficult decision. So oftentimes we need to we need to have some way of structuring our network and our decision processes that will work in many different situations, in many different circumstances. And I think what is often called a simplistic decision-making, simple heuristics, a biased kind of uh, um, unsophisticated cognition is actually an attempt of human cognitive system to find a way to work, <laughs> to be adaptive in many different situations without knowing in advance what will happen. So you need to find kind of lowest common denominator in which to to cope, to, to, to work in many situations. And so this paper with Katsikopoulos and Barkozy uh, shows that when you don't know whether the next task is going to be simple or difficult, it actually is better to um, make decisions in relatively small groups 
rather than follow this kind of wisdom of crowd approach, where you want to have as large group as possible, or to follow a single leader. When you don't know, it's best to have a small group. Somehow, in this, with a small group, uh, the drawbacks of a large group when the, pro the problem is difficult or, the, or, or of the uh, idiotic leader somehow cancel out <laughs> and you get the best, um, the best performance across, of, across a range of situations. That sort of begs the other question, which is who decides who's on that jury or who decides who's going to be in that, you know, that uh, elite panel of, of right. tastemakers? Well, there is that. So this paper is kind of neat because it shows that you can just select randomly. So let's say that somehow, okay, so we are kind of, no, so let's say that you somehow selected your group of experts, whoever you have. You can profit by making them a bit smaller. <laughs> Just fire some of them randomly, and you'll be better off in most situations. So is Congress too big? <laughs> is that like... You know, actually, we're looking at this. And so, I mean, most of the decisions in Congress are actually made in smaller committees, which, rarely, which are, you know, up from 20 to 40, sometimes smaller groups. And not the whole, the whole Congress, only kind of relatively rarely. I mean, for, for a minority of decisions are, are put in front of the whole Congress. And then they're just following their they have there's a there's a second heuristic of like well they agree so we're just going to follow well, I guess that, that. that it, so that's not my area but I would yeah. I would guess uh, some some uh, work at SF I would suggest that yeah it probably happens in stages you 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 decide something in a smaller group and then a representative of these groups will meet and then make decisions among themselves and so on so it's scaled. So, so I in mean, essence, you're dealing with relatively small groups at every stage. Mm. So, you know, the, the thing that's I'm racking my, my mind trying to figure out is what the advice is for planetary governance mm -hmm. in this, right? Because, you know, the, the real pain point is we're all exposed to global set of problems. We're all aware you know, that that we are in some way implicated in the burning of the Amazon or, you know, the overfishing of the Pacific. Uh, and there are obviously there are small things that people can do. They can opt out of the consumer lifestyle, et cetera. But when it comes to these massive global issues and the fact that we don't have random panels deciding on how we're going to handle this. Mm -hmm. And we don't even have, in, in most cases, like governance at all scales at which governance is even required. You know, I, I wonder what it would look like, what a uh, kind of, I don't know what the right word for this would be, some sort of planetary ecumenical mm -hmm. federation of what, whatever. But then, what is it just like, are we just going to... Uh, select people at random from all over oh. the world. And, I mean, clearly stakeholders ought to be involved, mm -hmm. but... Yeah. So, two things. One is that there are different stages of decision-making process. One is collecting information. And there we could profit from large groups, a lot of diverse information, a lot of diverse experiences, at some point, then, the second stage comes when a group needs to make a decision whether to go left or right or go to the moon or again or to Mars. <laughs> and so in these cases, it has, we show that smaller group can be better. 
And this assumes that this smaller group has collected all possible information about the problem. This is, they are as expert as they can be. It's not like that they are deciding on, on they're deciding randomly or, or if they're completely ignorant. So if, if they did not collect any information and they're actually more likely to be wrong than right. In this case, it's, it's actually better to either choose by a dictator, just have one person, or to have as large group as possible. But if we have a relatively expert group of people who overall across many different decisions is likely to make better than chance decisions at least, then a smaller group will be better. So maybe to summarize, so there are, there are two stages of decision process, collecting of information where we want to collect as much information as possible to communicate with as many and as many diverse people as possible and making of a decision when once we collected enough information so that we can, we are kind of pretty confident that at least in the long run we make better than chance decisions, then it pays off statistically, as we show in this paper, to have smaller groups of decision makers, basically randomly selected from everyone who has sufficient expertise about the topic. So voting is kind of out. <laughs> in this. Like, you know, there's, yeah. there's a... Yeah, essentially you know, that's what it shows. Yeah. So if you have 200 people who studied everything about the world, and now they're maybe confident that they will make a little bit better than chance decisions, and they need to make 20 decisions about the world. It is actually better that not all 200 vote about each decision, but that to select smaller groups of them to vote about these decisions. And across the 20 decisions, they will achieve better performance. You know, it's funny. I'm, I'm thinking of um, Michelle Girvan's community mm -hmm. lecture that mm -hmm. she gave on reservoir computing. And just uh -huh. the notion that you can improve a machine learning system, mm -hmm. uh, you can basically keep it if I'm, if I'm, I think I'm drawing this analogy correctly, that you know, machine learning has a, a habit of immediately finding the local optimum yeah. and then settling there and missing the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And by adding a chaotic system to the machine learning algorithm, you know, just like a camera on a bucket of water uh -huh. is enough to add enough chaos into that process mm -hmm. that, I mean, this sounds a lot like the random, like the lottery selection. That's exactly selection. what's happening there. Yeah. Definitely. The phenomenon that we are describing in this paper has to do with intentional introduction of noise by selecting smaller groups of people. I want to go back to the, uh, the nature communications paper mm -hmm. quickly because, you know, you, you get a little more granular here in terms of how people are making decisions and how in, in different networks people can emphasize exploration mm -hmm. or exploitation. Mm -hmm. They can, that at the individual level, different types of situations favor you copying the best solution and other situations favor you spending more time to explore and try things out and see for yourself. And I found it really interesting how these different strategies, these different thresholds for uh, exploration and exploitation compared within simple environments and within complex environments, mm -hmm. within, you know, very inefficient networks and within efficient networks. Mm -hmm. And I just, I'd love to just uh, unpack that a little bit. Actually, this, uh, this paper was uh, by itself exploration of one conundrum in the current literature. Some researchers find that people solving complex problems solve them better if they're 
uh, well connected to each other, if they work in well connected communities where they constantly communicate. Other researchers find that it's the opposite, that actually complex problems are solved better in networks that are not well connected, where people communicate rarely. They do communicate, but rarely. So we're wondering, and, and uh, both of these kinds of findings were published in prestigious journals by prestigious uh, authors. So we're wondering, what is, what is the catch? How can this be? And we think that the answer is in the way we integrate information from the, from the group. If you're in a well-connected network, but you're following one or two people that currently seem the best, you're essentially not using the whole information in the network. And so it is as if you're basically in a less connected network. If you're in a less connected network, but you are taking care to listen to everyone and to integrate information from everyone, you're essentially in a, you can actually receive more information than if you're a well-connected network, but only listening to, to one person. And so, by, introdu so we, by introducing these decision rules, this cognitive part in this traditionally more machine learning, sociology, uh, computational problem, we were able to show that you can get both effects. So you can be in a well-connected network, but if you listen to one or two people, then you, um, then you will be actually quite good on complex tasks. Mm. But if you're in a well-connected network and you also listen to everyone and integrate information from everyone, you could get stuck. You know, you can maybe like we are today in this world. We are we are zooming from one solution to the other. Everything is changing very fast, and you're you're you you can get stuck in something that seems like a good solution, but in the long run is not a good solution. So um, by by uh, uh, so the the studies so far that found the contradictory findings had only two elements. They had task task complexity and social network structure, and they find that. Either in, for, for complex tasks, either the more connected or less connected network is better, and defined both ways. But now we introduce the third element, that's the human cognition, the way the information is integrated. And so we see that people are using a decision rule that integrates the whole information from a less connected network. They, they solve problems as if they're in a well-connected network. And vice versa, people who are in a well-connected network but are not using all of the information from it, it's kind of similar to the situation of the people who are in actually in a less connected network. And basically by introducing, by, by seeing this whole complex social system together, the mind, the network, the task, we can, we can, we can explain these apparent contradictions in the literature. So that reminds me of two things. One, okay. one is the recent research by James Evans mm -hmm. and his collaborators on right. innovation and scientific research mm -hmm. and how the, you know, we have a problem right now in science, which is that the, the institutes mm -hmm. are too densely connected. Yeah. They're, they're sharing researchers, they're sharing funding sources, and it, it's, it's practically an argument for places like SFI where there's a little bit of a, uh, a, a monasterial gap, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of isolation to encourage more divergent mm -hmm. thinking. Mm -hmm. There's also, you know, in this sort of ongoing landscape metaphor, talking about how different strategies work depending on the uh, efficient or inefficient network reminds me also of like leaving the city where you're surrounded by people and the strategy is you kind of ignore m most everybody and then going out into the country where everyone, they may have local network bias where they don't understand the stranger, mm -hmm. you know, in the same way that you might if you had a greater rate of exposure to diverse mm -hmm. population. 
but there's this the the other thing is the neighborliness of rural communities who are like oh a visitor <laughs> you know and they're 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 eager to hear your stories mm -hmm. you know, and people spend longer leaning over each other's fences and mm -hmm. catching up with each other mm -hmm. and so it seems like that's a really kind of grounded example of how these two strategies are expressed in these environments yeah i think you're exactly right and i think in, uh, in science work oftentimes teams will have a slack or some way of frequently communicating and frequently talking to each other about every little detail of, of scientific work. And I, I don't find it so productive because, you know, we all have many ideas all the time. And if I share every possible ideas with you and you with me, we will often maybe get distracted and we'll go in one direction that seems interesting in another direction that we might think that something is a good idea, which if we had just put it a little bit more thought and exploration, would see that it's not the best and that there is something else there. I personally find that my best ideas comes when I'm alone for a long periods of time, not completely isolated. So I need to have contact <laughs> with others. But um, this individual exploration is combined with occasional social uh, exchange uh, and testing ideas across the fence with a neighbor. <laughs> I think it's very important for kind of deeper scientific thought. Mm. I think the easier scientific problems, you know, like maybe some everyday lab stuff or problems about some statistical analysis or some data will be certainly faster sold if we have frequent contact, if we work in teams where we will frequently uh, communicate with each other and we kind of work on it together. But more complex problems, more difficult problems, I think are best sold when people disperse, spend some time on their own and occasionally come together to inform each other about their progress and then go from there. This actually reminds me also now that you talk about this in, in this way, uh, you, you know, you, you end this paper talking about the combinatorial nature of innovation. Mm. And it just sounds to me like what you're talking about is the, the evolutionary incentive for sexual reproduction, mm -hmm. that it makes sense uh, once you've reached a certain level of organismal complexity mm -hmm. to, <laughs> to, you know, to have the boys and the girls uh -huh. and then to have mixing, periodic uh -huh. mixing. Oh, that's interesting. You know, yeah. that there's, yeah. you're going to get better solutions for moving complex organisms through a complex landscape uh -huh. if you uh, partition strategy like this and then allow it to remix from time to time. That sounds very reasonable. But, you know, you, you bring that up in this paper uh, as a lead into a question about uh, research, which at least at the time hadn't been done, and I'm, I'm curious, you know, you're, if if you're willing to speculate into uh -huh. this, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that there's been very little attention devoted to the coevolution of innovation and the simultaneous diffusion of innovations, mm -hmm. and then you know this gets back to something you brought up earlier in this conversation about you know why it is that good ideas don't spread sometimes, why it is that we see as you put it, mm -hmm. sometimes interventions aimed at changing the social environment while disregarding strategies for social learning don't produce the desired effects. Mm -hmm. And like, I'm, I'm used to thinking about this kind of stuff about efficient and inefficient networks that this paper addressed has come up in the Santa Fe Institute Facebook group. And oh. um, well, it, it, in terms of there was, I forget who it was, you can probably remind me work done on the spread of disinformation uh -huh. and how they found that 
highly connected networks sort of prevented the spread of disinformation, but uh, also prevented innovation. Mm-hmm. And so it's this this double edged sword where if that's yeah. sort of a separate thing. It gets back to the yeah. the noise issue and the importance of risk in this process. But I'm just thinking about this more broadly. Okay, so we took a poll in the Facebook group Uh recently, uh, asked people what they thought the most interesting questions that could be asked by complex systems science Mm -hmm. are. And one of the more popular questions was, if we even have a good idea, how do we get people to adopt it? Yeah. This issue of how do we work with these diverse Mm -hmm. strategies and these diverse network structures, because it's becoming increasingly clear Mm -hmm. that, you know, like the Al Gore uh, crew, these people are leaving the climate thing to ask this other question about Mm -hmm. the rhetorical failures Mm -hmm. of the climate movement and, and why it is that people's minds aren't getting changed. Here's a chance to introduce some, some work that I'm, some, some studies that I'm currently working on with my collaborators, Tamara van der Doos and, Gizem Batsaksizlar and Joshua Garland. <laughs> and it is all about how ideas spread in different social network structures and how network structures by themselves change as a consequence of ideas and uh, threats that people uh, perceive to be ex- experiencing. So uh, uh, with Tamara under those, we are working a lot on how and why people decide to uh, accept or not a new scientific idea, a new scientific belief. We are looking at beliefs about vaccination and genetically modified food and climate change, and all of them are uh, tightly related to both um, our semantic networks in the head. So the the, uh, different values and other beliefs that we have about issues, and they're related to the social networks. So with Tamara Vanderdoss, we are looking um, at how people decide whether to accept or not a new scientific belief. And traditionally, science communication focused on providing facts to people. They would isolate a particular belief that people should now have, like that they should vaccinate their children or that anthropogenic climate change is happening. And then they would provide people facts only about that issue. Ideally, we as scientists like to devoid things of any context, and so we would provide them in a well-designed way as a table or as a graph, and we would expect people to take that. There is a problem. And I think, I mean, we are discovering this, I think, I think only now, that uh, there are two types of, that, that scientific beliefs depend on two types of networks. One is our social network. And what do we think that other people in our social networks believe about the issues, uh, about this issue? So, of course, we know, like, vaccination is, is tightly, uh, that tends to be, that beliefs about vaccinations tend to be quite homogenous in different social circles. Parents are often surrounded by parents that also have similar opinions about vaccination, let's say, and, and kind of vaccinating or not vaccinating your children, depending on your social circle, can, can be a reason for ostracism. People could um, you know, tell you that you're a bad parent and harass you in some way or reduce your opportunities to, to cooperate, to get a babysitter, to have friends and so on. So being wrong about something might be less costly than losing friends <laughs> over this issue, especially when it comes... Uh, to issues such as, uh, until relatively recently, did not have huge consequences for daily life, like climate change. So it's fine to be wrong about climate change as long as you can keep your friends. So there is the social network aspect. 
But then there is also another kind of network, and there's this semantic network. And these are all kinds of different values that we have that are surrounding this issue. So especially climate change famously, and after decades of political manipulation, is tightly, tightly related to political ideology. And Democrats believe one thing, Republicans believe one thing, while, whereas the issue of climate change should not be related to any political ideology. It's a human natural phenomenon uh, that, uh, that has nothing to do with political ideology. But it is in our heads. It is related. In a way, you cannot be a good Republican if you're believing in anthropogenic climate change, and you cannot be a good Democrat if you're not believing in it. Uh, similar to, it, it's, uh, in a similar way, uh, beliefs about vaccinations and about GM food are related to our moral values of fairness, uh, whether something is natural, whether something is in line with our tradition, whether somebody is, you know, whether somebody is profiting uh, over some people without much power, whether we have freedom to decide and so on. And so changing beliefs about vaccinations, for example, or climate change might actually require to first change other beliefs around that issue so that people can open up and take the scientific fact. Or the fact needs to be packaged in such a way so that it has, so that, so that it somehow resonates with other values people have. That reminds me of, you know, George Lakoff's work mm -hmm. on this. You know, he talks about how political messaging has, you know, the, the, he, you know, in his commenting on the Clinton-Trump opposition in, mm -hmm. in 2016, and how the Democrats uh, appealed to fact, mm -hmm. and the, the Republicans appealed to to feeling, mm -hmm. and that there's this, there is a deeper structure here. Yeah. And I don't, you know, this kind of may be a tangent, but it, I mean, it speaks to the, this question about semantic networks and their role in the decision-making mm -hmm. and the way that things as, as subtle as the, the metaphorical entailments, mm -hmm. the connotations of a particular phrase mm -hmm. can, can shift all of this. Mm -hmm. And the, the connotations themselves change. Yeah, definitely. Because as the wording changes, the connotation, as the, as the way something is said change, different uh, people, people think of different things. Different parts of the semantic network are activated. And so um, words like global warming was often rejected by maybe more Republican-leaning people as something that's not happening. So climate change was a way to talk about this. You know, so yes, definitely different words will evoke different, uh, different other beliefs, which will then make it more or less likely to reconsider an issue. Do you worry about you know, this, this issue of ideology and mm -hmm. the social value of agreeing with the people around you and of conforming to a collective decision. Mm -hmm. um, are you concerned, or like, in, in what ways do you see this being, <laughs> this is kind of a, I don't know, maybe it's a feisty question. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a known problem that politically motivated innumeracy, right? I mean, like, we know You're that right. that people that are exceedingly smart mm -hmm are actually better yeah. at lying to themselves right. in order to conform. Mm -hmm. And are, are, you know, brilliant mathematicians are willing to overlook elemental mathematics in order to meet this. So like, how do you, how do you see this as a problem for the scientific community in, in yeah. this kind of stuff? I mean, um, so first I, I think that this kind of behavior is actually quite adaptive. I mean, oftentimes, it's, it's better to, to be able to stick with your group than to be correct about some remote truth. 
So it's just a fact of life. The, the problem for us scientists is to, to reconcile our legitimate need to, to study facts and study relationships in nature without uh, personal biases. So we, we, we must devoid our science from, from our personal context, from our social context, from what our friends think. We, this is how we achieve good conclusions. But at the same time, this is not how people operate. That's why science is so special. I mean, it needs to be taught over years in schools. It's not, it does not come naturally. And so we need to somehow find a way to also communicate our science while respecting that other people are also thinking about what their friends will think and how this all uh, squares with their need to believe in things like, you know, God or a leader or to uh, yeah, sanctity of nature or whatever moral values are, are, are important to them. So I think this is going to be the next challenge for us to learn how to communicate. I mean, advertisers, some politicians are really, really good in that. So to, they latch on some value that people have and they associate a particular fact that they want people to believe or think <laughs> with that value. And so, and that works pretty well. I mean, from, I don't know, uh, using uh, uh, people's uh, preference for, you know, young, beautiful faces to advertise goods to using people's, you know, fear of others uh, to uh, to promote certain political ideas, it works. And uh, maybe rather than shunning it and, and thinking that we should somehow cure people from it, at least for now, it would be good to better understand human nature and to try to find ways to present scientific facts in a way that uh, that respects this. So, knowing what you know about decision-making and how you as a human being come to your own conclusions about the world, what's keeping you, like what, what are your uh, self-assigned handicaps or modifications mm -hmm. to your process that are keeping you from taking a, like a Darth Vader turn and just becoming a <laughs> super politician, rhetorical, extraordinarily viral communicator of inadequately examined conclusions. Sometimes I have these thoughts, oh, maybe I should just use all this and, you know, manipulate people and run big bucks and then... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I just think it's immoral. I mean, I don't know. It's not in line with my personal moral values. I think maybe from my various experiences, I, I do believe that people should be given a chance, that they should be allowed to develop to the best of their ab abilities, and that, you know, manipulating them for the purpose of my personal gain is just not something that is going to lead to that goal. So in my moral value system, allowing people to find, finding a way to, to allow people to grow and to, to develop their, to the best of their personal capacity is something that makes me happy. What advice would but you... But if the NSF stops funding me... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to be uh, an ad boss here before too long. Oh, there is another yeah. thing. Given that, you know, as a psychologist, I kind of like humanity and I think that people are interesting. I had conversations with some colleagues who are, who are telling me, well, you know, you're studying all, this, all, all these different ways that are of kind of how people can be manipulated. It gives you a powerful weapon. What if it comes to the wrong hands? And this is, I think, a very, very important question. And I, you know, I try to often reflect on that. But my answer to that is, you know, I'm a scientist. My goal is to understand how something, something works and share this knowledge with 
as large part of humanity as possible so that we collectively can know more about us, ourselves. And so I, I believe like if the knowledge about our possibilities and failures is public, if everybody knows it, then it will be less likely for someone to exploit it on a large scale. If it's something that's hidden and that we don't know much about, much about, then people like certain politicians or certain companies could exploit it without people noticing that this is happening. But once we know to what extent and how exactly are the mechanisms in which our social networks influence us and in which our network of beliefs influences what we are willing to believe next, then we can both avoid manipulation better and also help ourselves grow again, find ways to surround ourselves with people and with ideas that will best help us to grow in the direction that we, where we want to go. Sounds very esoteric, but that's approximate. <laughs> well, let's bring this home with something a little bit less esoteric, okay. which I love the esoteric, okay. but right, something grounded, practical, mm -hmm. and broadly applicable would be, like we've spent most of this conversation talking about big problems, big issues, problems that really challenge our ability to even gather adequate information mm -hmm. at that scale. But most people are living their lives, making their decisions on the basis of these local networks, and these decisions are affecting more or less just the people around you. What do you see as the really crucial takeaways from your research about how to actually engage in community decision-making processes at the small scale, like within families, within neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. What is your advice to community builders mm -hmm. in homesteads and villages? And I feel like a lot of, there's a lot of movement of people into these, you know, smaller and more intentional organizations and, you know, what's the way to, navigate that with grace in this world again i think i mean it's it's important to know some regularities of human social behavior and how especially to understand interaction of of a few elements that are present in most of these human social situations and that's who communicates with whom how are decisions made by decree or by majority and like what task are we solving and just by looking at that, and my work is written with kind of simple models of these things, one can actually have a pretty good idea or make some good guesses about how to organize this community to face different problems. So even in families, some decisions are made by uh, discussion and by taking majority vote. Others just parent decides as they think is best. So somehow people intuitively know these things. And I think in, in communities also, sometimes people self-organize in ways that is best for different decisions, but sometimes because of tradition or because of the authority of someone or, or some religious belief or something, sometimes communities fall prey to maybe following too much a certain way of decision-making, maybe following a local leader or a certain you know set of rules rather than being more flexible and adopting to different, different tasks and, and, and um, purposes. So what seems like a complex social situation might actually be interaction of a few simple things. I'm exploring the network structure, the rule, and the task structure. And yeah, knowing that could help us, um, help us organize the society. There is another thing that I'd like to mention, and that's um, kind of having some idea how, 
how we how we as people, maybe because of what we learned throughout our evolutionary history, react to certain things. For example, how we react to threat of the unknown or of another group. And that's something that I'm studying with in my work with Gizem Batsaksalar, and we are looking at um, how leaders emerge in discussion groups that feel more or less under threat. We are looking, for example, at um, right-wing groups communicating before and after 2016 election and left-wing groups. And before the election, when everybody thought Hillary Clinton will win, right-wing groups were feeling more under threat and under pressure. They were unsure about their future. After the election, it was the other way around. Now, the left-wing groups were feeling more threatened and kind of bewildered. And we see that in, in, the, in the discussions that were being led before and after election, that there are more leaders. The inequality of influence is larger before the election for groups that feel threatened, for the right-wing groups, and uh, after the election in the left-wing groups. Yeah. So it seems like, and, and this, this is in line with some other work that we are doing, and with some old social psychology findings that when groups are under threat, they tend to restructure and this does have some purpose. So because a unified group will be better in most cases in defeating the enemy. So a group that deliberates a lot and has long meetings and nobody agrees will, will probably be less effective in defeating you know, another enemy group than a group who unifies behind maybe not the best, but currently you know, the available leader and just does something together. And so it seems that maybe such things still happen. And then this has implications for... The problems that the group is solving is the group needs to solve a complex problem that they feel under threat and they tend to unify between, behind the common leader. They could be less successful in solving a complex problem. They could be better in solving a simple problem, but they will be less well and less good in solving a complex problem. And so having some sensibility of how will the group change under threat when people are afraid and maybe when they're experiencing other emotions is also something that's, that I think is important and should be considered by these community organizers. Even the best organized, most diverse group with wonderful, you know, communication channels where everybody cares about each other's feelings, once the group feels under threat, could evolve into something else, some group of scared individuals that is following a leader that is not taking into account all the available information, is being less good in solving a complex issue. And kind of preparing for this, allowing people to differentiate what is actually a threat and what is just a perceived threat allowing everyone to have the freedom, you know, to express themselves, you know, these things. Yeah, to just feel less anxiety might actually help in many situations. Mm. So those are those things. We've probably jumped the shark here yeah, at this so point, but, but this is such an interesting thing mm. that you're, you're talking about here because what it sounds like to me is that there is like a meta-level problem here, which is that the more complex the world appears, mm -hmm. the more uh, the numerous problems that we identify, the more likely we are to feel under threat and the more likely we are to adopt strategies that are actually maladaptive. Exactly. So exactly. like right now, you know, we've got uh, this, the, the climate issue mm -hmm. is creating this situation where people are sort of electing charismatic autocrats exactly. yeah. against each other. Yeah. And we're not actually, it, it, it all feels very much like a diversion yeah. from the kind of discussion that needs to be happening in order right. to address these issues. Yeah. And it could be actually a reaction that, that worked in many times in our history, but it's currently not working. And so we as a society will just need to find ways to cope with new realities of life, with faster change, with more uncertainty overall, and without 
changing into this scared mob <laughs> mm. that seems to be happening now. You got any uh, prophylactics for unnecessary fear mm. <laughs> you know, at the social level? Our whole relationship with uncertainty will have to change. Uh, I think one of the main problems in accepting science is this idea that things should be certain, that we should know yeah, with 100% whether something is so or so. Um, and oftentimes, I think leaders, even scientists, tend to present their work in a in a way that reduces the uncertainty in the in the uh, you know like the, the, the audience proceeds uh, with less uncertainty. So you know they, they try to increase the certainty of their findings because something something that's more certain is more easily accepted. But it seems again another social skill that we will all have to adopt, and that's kind of coping with uncertainty better, understanding that nothing is, will ever be known for sure and kind of being okay with that. <laughs> Knowing that, that just by, if we have a, some kind of good process in place, like scientific process that's self-correcting and that's kind of unbiased to any particular group, that this is probably a good process that will lead us somewhere. And so, yeah. So yeah. negative capability, sort of a, 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 a willingness to not know a willingness, to, yeah, a willingness to, to have to revise our conclusion. Right, right. I, this is, I guess, also related to to trust. Trust that we have some processes and people in place that are looking or are designed to look for our best interests, which is also something that is eroding rapidly, it seems. I guess I'm now talking... Well I, well, I feel like we've gone full circle okay. now because we're, we're actually back at the point where we're talking about... We didn't use this word, but homophily, uh -huh. like the desire to surround yourself with people yeah. like you and how mm -hmm. that skews our understanding of yeah. the bigger picture. Yeah. And, it, you know, maybe it, it sounds like what we're really circling here is that there may be some way to offer or it may just happen naturally out of necessity that we find it suddenly crucially useful to intentionally associate with the other to cross the aisle to reach out to people who think very differently from ourselves because mm -hmm. we realize that we're partners in this mm -hmm. kind of collective mm -hmm. decision making process yeah i completely agree it seems like it it is almost a, I, I see it as a new civic duty that we'll just have to learn like we learn to you know live together without attacking strangers we learn to obey certain laws I mean, we evolve certain, not evolve, we, we learn certain things that we are we, we did not evolve, that are not genetically coming to us. Uh, so I, I think we also need to learn this um, tolerance for uncertainty and tolerance for another point of view and even reaching out and rather than closing ourselves in our little echo chambers, actively reaching to others and uh, communicating with others, not only because we will be smarter, but because, because they will make better decisions. The moment we'll cut the link to someone, that person also loses and is also closed in their own echo chamber. So we are achieving the opposite of what we want to achieve. We are losing the source of information, and we are also not convincing the other side to change their mind. So we will have a basically a responsibility to, in this world where it's so easy to choose friends <laughs> and alienate people, we, will, uh, we have a responsibility to, to reach out and to keep the connections open. Otherwise, we will just evolve in a series of isolated communities. So do you have a scientific nemesis whose work I should also be reading? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> Let me see. Anyone that, that with whom uh, 
you might violently disagree that, that, that I should be studying very carefully now. You know, we psychologists are very humble. We know that we don't, don't know anything. <laughs> and I guess, I mean, at the same time, so we know we know that we don't know. At the same time, uh, there is a saying in psychology, which I noticed now in Santa Fe, that it's not present in many other communities, that theories are like toothbrushes. Everybody has their own and nobody wants to use anyone else's. <laughs> Like, you see your laugh. For me, that's like I grew up with that statement. It's such a common knowledge in psychology. So everybody has their own personal theory. Everybody knows that it's probably not correct. Everybody knows that there are 100 other equally plausible theories. So I think we kind of all, we don't hate each other. We all disagree with each other, but we are also aware that we don't know much. So I don't think there is a big, there are no big haters in psychology. But overall, like, it, yeah. it might be useful to your microbiome if you share a toothbrush every once in a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Mirta, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, it was a pleasure to be listened by you. <laughs> if you uh, want to point people to anything in particular beyond this conversation, educational resources or that kind of thing. I mean, uh, I didn't advertise uh, Joshua Garland's work on no. counter speech. Yeah, yeah well, let's. Do you want to? Wanna okay. Dive back into that real quick. Okay. Yeah, and so this is basically one way of uh, reaching out to the other side. So, of course, we all experience a lot of this hate online, and we are witnessing a lot of hate speech. And the easiest way for us to do is again to block hate, to censor hate, and to disconnect from those who have different opinion, trying to show them the error of their ways. Or maybe empathizing with the victim of hate to help the victim to kind of survive through the process and to keep on fighting. Or maybe just by flooding the conversation with some irrelevant stuff, you know, posting pictures of puppets or something. Many of these, many of these techniques, empathizing with the victim, empathizing with the perpetrator, providing facts, flooding the conversation have been proposed. Um, and they have been described. And we, we know, for example, many of those from uh, the traditional <laughs> bullying literature from schools, from workplaces. And now people are starting to think how this could be applied to online communication. But we know very little about it. And it's still very difficult to analyze this because we don't have good methods to to analyze the topics of large uh, amount of, of data online. It's still This is still uh, the natural language processing and all these uh, techniques for classifying speech in hate or counter speech or neutral speech are still developing. And Joshua Garland being the wizard of everything computational uh, and, and a fantastic applied mathematician is developing together with colleagues different algorithms to detect both hate speech and counter speech and to see what actually works. You know, what kind of counter speech do citizens use to best either, you know, show the haters the error of their ways or maybe more likely, you know, make them stop and to support the victims. I always got myself out of getting my ass kicked in school uh-huh. by responding with complete nonsense. Uh-huh. There, so you're the flooding the, you're yeah. the puppy, you're the puppy uh, yeah. <laughs> strategy. Interesting. Awesome. Well, yeah, thanks yeah. again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex system science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.